Good morning, church family. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Andrew Wild. Our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, is hosting our Discover Rock class this morning. He's over there in our community room, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. If this happens to be your first Sunday with us, welcome. We're glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord. And as a congregation right now, we're in the middle of a study of Luke's gospel. And it isn't so much that we're studying Luke as it is that through Luke's words, we are getting to know Jesus better. Through Luke's interviews of eyewitnesses and his careful investigative work, we have a reliable record of what Jesus said and what he did. And as we read Luke's gospel, uh, I feel it's a bit like putting together pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And with every verse that we take in, it's the equivalent of adding another piece to that puzzle so that we have a fuller and more accurate picture of who Jesus is. Now, I'll warn you, the passage that we'll look at today reels, reveals uh, dimensions or aspects of Jesus that many would prefer to overlook. And in fact, what we discover today might come into conflict with preconceived assumptions you might have about what Jesus is like. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'm going to invite you to begin turning to Luke chapter 14. We'll begin momentarily in verse 25. If you recall at the end of chapter 9, Jesus begins making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem for the final time. He's been teaching and healing now for over two years, and his popularity has skyrocketed. Bloggers are writing about him. People are trying to take selfies with him. Hashtag Carpenter from Nazareth has been trending for like a solid 52 weeks now. If you recall from the start of chapter 12, in fact, you could just flip back there two verses if you want. Luke tells us that so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So it's no surprise to read now when we look at chapter 14, verse 25, that great crowds accompanied Jesus on this journey. Now you can sort of picture the scene in your mind, and if you put yourself in the sandals of the disciples, I'm thinking this was cause for excitement. They had gotten in on ground level, and they're part of Jesus' inner circle. It's not hard to imagine maybe Peter glancing in the rear view and seeing the throng of people and maybe giving a little fist bump to James and John. They're probably thinking, wow, you know, this is where it's at. This is going down. I mean, we're going to ride this wave right into Jerusalem. And what happens next? I mean, surely Jesus knows how to work a crowd, right? He's going to leverage this opportunity. He's going to capitalize on the moment. He's going to tell the people everything that he can do for them, and he's going to shore up the fan base, right? Not so much. Watch what happens next. You can follow along with me. So he, now the great crowds accompanied him, and it says that, that he turned, and you can maybe picture him motioning for silence or clearing his throat. And then he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Guess who just pulled the e-brake on the party train to Jerusalem? Jesus. I mean, he, he just ratcheted down the enthusiasm level a couple of degrees, didn't he? I, I feel like this would be like a, the DJ at a party just sort of scratching the record and bringing the, the, the party to, to dead silence. You can't help but wonder, you know, the disciples, they're probably used to Jesus making some shocking statements by now. Was one of them tempted to, to stand up and maybe like a good press secretary walk back those comments? Uh, what Jesus really meant to say, everyone, is that he's honored you're here and he's delighted you would want to be uh, one of his disciples, that you would want to affiliate with him. Isn't that what you meant to say, Jesus? Jesus, we did a quick focus group and 75% of the respondents had had a negative reaction to that statement. You know, like Jesus, if we want to be seeker sensitive, if we want to attract the multitudes, wouldn't we want to dial back the commitment level? But this wasn't some mistake on Jesus' part. He didn't stand up later in the day and announce, uh, hey, everyone, um, my word choice could have been a little clearer this morning. No, he, he stood by those remarks and what he laid out for the crowds and for us today as well are what we could say are the conditions of discipleship or the cost of discipleship. He wants everyone who is contemplating a relationship with him to know what that entails. As we look at the passage, we'll see three conditions for discipleship and three corresponding illustrations. If you were to outline the passage, what we see is that we get conditions one and two, followed by two illustrations, followed by a, a, a third condition or a third cost, and then a final illustration. So let's begin now with condition number one, which we find in verse 26. It says this in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, what's the result? Read it with me. He cannot be my disciple. Now, I realize uh, this statement raises some questions, but let's start with what I feel is the most important one. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Is this sort of a, a special category of Christian that's reserved for those who maybe you go to Bible college or go out on the mission field or those who are just really spiritually mature and they know a lot of the Bible and spend a lot of time in prayer? Or, or you know, maybe is a disciple just a, a term that refers to those very first followers of Jesus? And we don't even have disciples today. Well, I would submit to you that it's neither. A disciple is just simply someone who's a learner or a follower or an apprentice. And, and so, what that means is there isn't just some larger category called Christian, and then disciple is like a special subset of that. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're a Christian, and vice versa. 
To be a disciple of Jesus is synonymous with being a Christian. Jesus is talking to the crowds here, and he's talking about entry into a relationship with him. So this brings us to question number two. Is really, Jesus really saying that if we want to be his disciple, we have to hate our families? I mean, didn't Jesus elsewhere summarize all of, of God's law by saying that number one is we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and number two is to love our neighbor at ourselves? I mean, didn't Jesus also say, didn't he even say that we're to love our enemies? So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, whenever we encounter a confusing passage in Scripture, and there are confusing passages, we should always seek to interpret those in light of passages that are straightforward and clear. So we know from what Jesus has said elsewhere that he is not demanding a hatred of one's family. The confusion here is due to Jesus' use of a Semitic idiom. To love a person more than, than another is described in the Old Testament as loving one and hating the other. So the word hate here has a comparative force. What, what Jesus is stressing is that discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. If we're forced to choose between Jesus and parents, or Jesus and siblings, or Jesus and spouse, or Jesus and kids, or even Jesus in our own life, the clear winner in that choice must be Jesus. He is to be our first love. And I'm guessing for the majority of us in this room, a decision for Jesus wouldn't alienate us from our families. But it could. Last week, we heard from a missionary couple who has served among our unreached people group in the, the Himalayas. Today's Scripture passage was read in one of the, language, the languages that's spoken there. Now in that region of the world and many others like it, a decision for Jesus very well could mean uh, being ostracized or rejected or even persecuted from family. I know for some in our church, a, a decision for Jesus has resulted in, 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 in teasing from a spouse, even ridicule for, for wanting to go to church. Maybe it's even resulted in outright opposition to wanting to go on a short-term mission trip or participate in even Bible study or honor God with your finances. And, and, and knowing this might happen, Jesus says that our, our commitment to him, it has to be deeper and greater than any family commitment. One cannot follow Jesus if other relationships have a stronger pull. Parents, Jesus says this even includes our relationships with our kids. Now, we can't love our kids too much, can we? Because Jesus says that we are to love others as he loved us. But maybe sometimes we can get the priorities out of whack a little bit. And we, when we inventory the amount of, of time we spend on the social or athletic or acad academic development of our kids, might Jesus want us to wrestle with whether our, our love for him surpasses all others? You know, if Jesus was speaking to those of us living today, the other relationships I think he'd mention, I think he'd say something about friends and coworkers. 
I think those social bonds today in our Western culture are just as important as the family bonds were in the ancient Near East in the first century. I mean, think about it. If you were to get married, or for those of you that, that, that did get married, I mean, you probably invited just as many friends as you did family members, didn't you, to that ceremony. Our, our friends can have an incredible influence on our lives. And Jesus is saying, well, if there's classmates or coworkers or friends that don't have a positive reaction to your decision for him, well, a choice is going to have to be made. Jesus is stressing that we can't be his disciple if we choose friends over him. So if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin or you're jotting things down in your margin of your Bible, the first condition of discipleship is to love Jesus more than anyone else. No one can usurp his supreme position. We would say this is a relational cost of discipleship. And this now leads us to a second condition, which Jesus lays out in verse 27. He says this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, what's the result again? Help me out here. Let's read it together. Cannot be my disciple. Jesus seems to be expanding upon what he means in the previous verse when he says the disciple must be willing to hate even his own life. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't advocating self-loathing. He isn't encouraging his followers to take a negative view of themselves. If he did, it really wouldn't make much sense for him elsewhere to say that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, if, if we hated ourselves, that wouldn't be a very high bar for loving your neighbor, would it? So we, we know he's not saying that. What he's saying is that, that our love for him must pale in comparison to the love that we have. The love that we have for ourselves is, is, should pale into comparison to the love that we have for him. And when you sit back and think about it, this is a, this is a tough ask. Some of you might remember um, there was a wide receiver who played in the NFL a few years back, Terrell Owens. He was a talented wide receiver, but a pretty outspoken guy. You remember his line? I love me some me. Now, none of us run around saying that. We have more social tact than Terrell Owens. We don't have that on a t-shirt. But if we're honest with ourselves, Terrell Owens isn't the only one who loves him some me, is he? I mean, I have the tendency to think about me, my dreams, my wants, my desires, my goals, my hopes, what's good for my career, what's good for my financial situation, what's good for my retirement. Maybe I'm not the only one. And Jesus, Jesus says that if we want to come after him, well, it's going to involve cross-bearing. It's going to involve dying to self. And this, this imagery of, of carrying a cross is really shocking. It, 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 he's saying that it, it necessitates a death to self. And the present tense verb here has an iterative force. We could also translate the sentence as saying, whoever is not bearing his own cross and is not coming after me. It's not this one and done decision that we make. It's a perpetual dying to self. It's a series of daily deaths. 
Because coming after him is going to involve self-denial and self-sacrifice, possibly even to the point of martyrdom. And so the second condition of discipleship is a willingness to bear your cross. Or we could say to, to die to self. It's a sacrificial cost. And those who love their own lives more than they love Jesus, we saw we cannot be his disciple. Now, having laid out these two conditions for discipleship, Jesus now uses two illustrations to encourage his followers to count the cost before making a decision. Let's pick up now in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, no one builds a tower nowadays. If you went to the bank and you asked for a home equity loan so you could put up a tower in your yard, that's going to be a non-starter. But, but these, these parables are essentially making the same point. Jesus is emphasizing the, the importance of, of careful calculation before making a decision. If Jesus were speaking today, he might say, for which of you, after watching 30 minutes of HGTV, decides to renovate the kitchen and immediately starts ripping out flooring and countertops? You don't do that, right? You first, you sit down, you come up with a plan, you figure out a budget. Otherwise, you're going to be the laughing stock of your family or the neighborhood or your relatives if you begin the project and you run out of funds and you have awesome new cabinets but no countertops or you have some amazing light fixtures but no appliances. In the same way, Jesus is encouraging serious and sober reflection before making a commitment to come after him. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't encourage a, a hasty emotional decision. He doesn't bury anything in the fine print. Uh, two weeks ago, I downloaded the, the Firefox browser uh, to my desktop. And, and before that thing came on, I had to agree to the terms and conditions. It was like three pages long. And the font was, was like size seven. I have no idea what I agreed to. I didn't read any of it. I just, I just clicked accept. And I'm, I'm just sort of hoping like a month from now, someone from Firefox doesn't come knocking on the door and say, hey, well, where's our $1,000? And you owe us this and that. No negative surprises, hopefully, on the back end. And I, and I think what Jesus is doing is saying, Hey, I, I want to avoid any sort of scenario like that. I, I don't want anyone to be surprised down the road when they enter into a relationship with me. So if you want to be my apprentice, I'm going to be clear up front what it's going to require of you. No surprises on the back end. Because here's the thing. If we go in on the front end, knowing what it means to be his disciple, we'll persevere in it. 
when we count the cost first, we'll be able to follow through on our decision. Jesus then introduces a, a third condition of discipleship in verse 33. He goes on to say, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, what's the result? Read it with me. Cannot be my disciple. Third time we've seen that. So Jesus, he wants to be first place in our lives. And what can come between us and him? Well, let's think about it. One, like other relationships with other people. Uh, Two, our own selfish interests and desires and agenda. And three, well, our stuff, our possessions. And Jesus insists on coming between us and our stuff. He wants us to be attached to him and not our things. So the third condition of a disciple discipleship is a willingness to renounce everything. It's a material cost, a financial cost. So what does it mean to renounce all that we have? Does that mean if you have a positive balance in your checking account or if you own a car or if you have some shares in a retirement fund that you can't be Jesus' disciple? Well, maybe. If you have a greater attachment to those things than you do to Jesus, that's going to be a problem. Jesus is saying coming after him means living as if there is no greater possession to be gained than taking hold of him. And if our love for our stuff, if our love for our money is greater than our love for Jesus, then discipleship isn't going to be for us. Because Jesus doesn't sort of want to be like the garnish on your plate of life. We can't go chasing houses and cars and toys and wardrobes and then say, hey, let me get a little Jesus on the side over here. Jesus is saying we need to be able to sing, you are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I would be a fool. You are my all in all. As Jesus said elsewhere, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus wants our hearts. And so that's why he wants to be our greatest treasure. Now let's just be honest here. This threefold call of Jesus is a pretty heavy cost, isn't it? It's a high bar. It entails putting Jesus above every other relationship we have. It involves a a commitment to God's will over our own desires. And finally, it's a forsaking all that we have. I mean, anybody want to say that sounds easy peasy? Not so much, right? In fact, it seems pretty demanding of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, that's why I said at the beginning that that in this passage, we're going to see an aspect of Jesus that many would prefer to, to overlook. I mean, what's going on here? Why does Jesus ask so much of us? Is Jesus just being super needy? Well, as I thought about that question this week, I'd like to offer five quick thoughts that I think might be helpful to that counter-argument. Number one, we're all going to worship something. There is going to be something or someone that we give our primary allegiance to. And whatever that is, 
it's going to make demands of you. If you pursue your career, if your job or climbing the ladder or getting the next promotion is the most important thing to you, it will come with the cost. It's going to demand evenings and weekends from you. You won't be free to not check your email on vacation. It will cause you to miss your kids' sporting events and birthdays and anniversaries. It's going to dictate when you can and can't go home. Well, what about if beauty, your, your physical appearance or some athletic pursuit is of supreme importance in your life? That's going to make a demand of you too. They'll control what you eat and when you eat and how much you eat, how much time you have to devote to the gym, what time you get up, what you do with your free time, what you spend your money on. You see, everything that you pursue is going to come with a cost. And everything except Jesus is going to demand more and more from you. And it's going to offer less and less in return. Think about how cult leaders work. They promise the moon on the front end. And then once you're in, the best is always in the past. And that's how Satan works too. He baits the line with pleasure and he hides the hook. He doesn't mention anything about the depression or the addiction or the anxiety or the heartache that might follow when he dangles that pleasure out in front. And Jesus is nothing like that. You see, Satan is ultimately a taker. And Jesus, yes, he makes demands of us. He wants the top spot in our hearts. But Jesus is a giver and not a taker. He wants to give us his peace and his comfort and his hope. He wants to share his very life with us so that we come and we, we experience the fellowship uh, and, and the joy that comes from, from being in the relationship with the Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit. Jesus wants us to surrender our lives to him so that he can give us his life. And then he can come and renew us in his image so that we can be the, the image bearers that God originally created us to be. Thought number two, yes, um, discipleship comes with a cost. Jesus makes demands of us, but I would say it's worth the cost. Jesus asks us to bear our own cross and to die to self, but Jesus also says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Yes, Jesus says that, that if we want to come to him, we must be willing to forsake our families and our stuff. But he also says this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus will be no man's debtor. There is no one who at the end of the day is going to say, oh, I've, I've outgiven God. Whatever we give up in this life will, compare, will pale in comparison to what we will gain what we'll receive. Number three, I'd say think about what Jesus did for us. He left the presence of the Father and came to this earth. And the night before he went to the cross, he prayed. He said, you know, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let, let, let's go with plan B. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus gave up a relationship with the Father, and he surrendered his life, and he died naked and penniless without a possession. You see, Jesus doesn't ask anything of his followers. 
that he hasn't already done himself. And when we consider the cost that he paid for our forgiveness, there isn't anything that sort of just says, oh, Jesus, no, that, that, that's too good for you when we think about what he did for us. Number four, I get that we, someone can read this and say, wow, I mean, who, who can ever achieve such a high bar? These just seem like impossible demands. I'm always going to fall short. Well, Jesus is not teaching here that we need to be perfect in order to be saved. This is not some sort of self-salvation strategy. And we think about what Jesus said to the crowds who felt weary and burdened from the demands of the religious leaders. In Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is upfront about the cost, but he's also clear that his yoke is not going to be soul-crushing. And that's because our salvation is not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what he did. And so when we believe in him and we confess him as our Savior and Lord, he gives us his spirit. And his spirit empowers us so that we have the strength to pursue him and begin to to lean into these things that he would ask from us. Finally, I'd say that being a disciple of Jesus, it it begins with a a one-time decision, but it's also a lifelong journey. And falling short in these requirements doesn't mean that we aren't saved. Even Jesus' inner circle failed at times. Peter declared Jesus to be God's promised Messiah, and then think about what happened several chapters later. He, he chooses to deny Jesus rather than risk losing face with a, with a servant girl. It was, was an insignificant relationship. It wasn't even an important one. And he chooses self-preservation over self-sacrifice. Does that mean that Peter wasn't a disciple? No. I mean, the fact that he felt convicted afterwards and was grieved by that decision, it validated the fact that he was indeed a disciple. And with the passage of time, we see Peter yielding more and more of his life to Jesus. And it should be the same with us. When we make a decision for Jesus, we should expect that the same thing is going to happen to us over time, that God is going to claim more and more of our lives for himself. When we become disciples, what we're doing is we're embracing that reality. We're entering into a relationship with him, knowing that's going to happen. And if you have sort of a minimalist mindset towards Jesus, if it's like, well, what's, what's the least amount that I have to give to Jesus and I can still be a Christian? Then I would, I would wonder if you're really a Christian. And if you're sort of entertaining that thought, like, what's, okay, what, what's the bare minimum? Then I would encourage you, after the service is over, talk to someone. We'll have people back at the tables and would love to give you assurance of salvation. And help you work through that. Now, if we try to affiliate with Jesus without acknowledging that he has the right to lay claim on all that we have, and, or if maybe we just make some sort of half-hearted commitment and we don't continue on the journey, well, Jesus issues a warning. We'll look at verses 34 and 35. 
He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think Jesus is saying here is that if these three conditions of discipleship, if they fade away, if, if, our, if our commitment to Jesus sort of deteriorates, that person will become useless like unsalty salt. And that's why it's so important to count the cost ahead of time. And Jesus told his disciples elsewhere that you are the salt of the earth. Earlier in the week, I was... Uh, talking with David Holcomb and asking him about some, you know, potential ideas for a sermon title. And he texted me Thursday night and said, salt life. I was like, oh man, that's good. The bulletin had already been printed. So um, we, we didn't roll with that. But maybe, maybe you too, in, in recent years, you've seen those bumper stickers popping up on the back of cards, or you've seen t-shirts with salt life written on it. I'm guessing this is some sort of apparel company that's marketing itself to, to beachgoers and saltwater fishermen. But long before that company ever started making t-shirts, Jesus was championing the salt life. And the way that we stay salty is by living in light of these three conditions of discipleship. So just very quick in closing, what do we make of this passage? Well, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, you're wondering, okay, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to become a Christian? Well, becoming a Christian is not about adherence to a particular ethical teaching, to following a certain set of rules. It's primarily about pledging our allegiance to Jesus and following him. He must be the preeminent relationship in our lives. In the same way that accompanying Jesus to Jerusalem uh, doesn't make one a, uh, a disciple of his. We could say also that going to meetings about Jesus or singing songs about Jesus or reading books about Jesus doesn't make one a Christian either. That's great if you like some of the things that Jesus said. But this passage makes clear that there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. And if you want to be a follower of his, then it requires a wholehearted commitment to him. You have to make a decision for him, recognizing full well the cost of that decision, recognizing what it's going to tell if you come after him. But what about those of us who have made that decision? Well, I think about... Uh, something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. At our resource center right now, one of the biographies that you can find is on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian, pastor, uh, spy, uh, ultimately a martyr. He was someone who remained faithful to Jesus uh, in the midst of World War II and went against Hitler and the Nazi-controlled state church and um, tragically died just a few days uh, before uh, the war came to an end in a concentration camp. He was also a writer, and probably his most famous book is entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he says this. He says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For those of us who are Christians, what Jesus is saying here is that this is the essence of the Christian life.
That, that's the journey we signed up for. And so may this passage encourage us. May it strengthen us in our resolve to be disciples who fully pursue Jesus so that we can lean into what he wants from us, regardless of the cost. May it, may it help us live the original salt life. And as we remain committed to Jesus with respect to our relationships and our stuff and even our own lives, then will be the seasoning that makes a difference in this world. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now as your people. And I pray that you would use your words, the words that your spirit inspired, to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, you know those areas in our life where we haven't surrendered, where there are allegiances and affections and desires that are keeping us tethered to this world that are hindering us in our walk with you and receiving from you all that you would want to give us. And we invite you to put your finger on those things and help us to more fully lean into what you would want from us so that we can more fully experience the all-surpassing fellowship that comes from being in relationship with you. And Lord, for the person here who's never made that decision, I pray that you would prick their heart. And if that's you, if you know that right now God is speaking to you and you've never made that decision, I want to give you the chance to do it now. You can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I want to be your disciple. And I'm right now laying down my life. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I recognize that my sin has separated me from you. And I thank you that you would bear the penalty for that. And you would offer me your perfect righteousness and you would restore my relationship with the Father. Come fill me with your spirit and help me to live for you all of my days. And all God's people said, amen.